0: And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Come, let us return and visit the brethren in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord, and see how they are. And Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia, and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp contention so that they separated from each other barnabas took mark with him and sailed away to cyprus but paul chose silas and departed being commended by the brethren to the grace of the lord this is the word of the lord <clears throat> One of my favorite authors is Arthur Gordon. He was quite an inspiration. When I was a young man, he's now in the kingdom of heaven, but I still love and remember his stories. There got a point in his life, he said, he was growing up in Georgia. He had finally grown up, his mom had gotten older, and she decided to move out of her home. It was the only home she had ever lived in. Beyond that, it was that home that had been in their family for 150 years. Now you think about cleaning out your house after you've been there 5 or 10 years. What would it be like to start emptying out a house that you've had in the family for 150 years? Arthur knew it was an incredibly daunting task, but he was actually a little excited about it, thinking maybe as he climbed up in the attic and the basement and all these areas, trying to figure out what's important, what stays, what goes... Maybe he could find some things from back in the 50s and the 60s. He wasn't talking 1950 and 60. He was thinking 1850 and 60. Maybe he could find some Confederate stamps that'd be worth a lot. This was Georgia. Maybe he could find a signature from Button Gwinnett. Button Gwinnett was from Georgia, and he's the one who signed the Declaration of Independence He didn't hardly sign anything else. So if you got his signature, it's worth thousands. he thought, maybe as we dig through all these trunks, you know, there's got to be some gold coins left in here somewhere that somebody didn't know about. But after all the work, he really didn't find any of those kinds of treasures. But he did find another kind of treasure. He found a trunk. And in that trunk, there were lots of old letters from his family. Back in the 1850s and 60s, it wasn't about current events. No, they're the kind of letters that you and I'd write. Letters about a husband or wife or your children, about a brother, about your, about your pet. I mean, those are what the letters were about, just like letters you and I'd write. But as Arthur began to read them, he noticed there was a difference There was a difference in the tone. It just just felt different and sound different. He began to look a little closer and then he realized what it was. There were statements like, you don't know how much your visit meant to each of us. When you left, I felt as if the sun had stopped shining. When was the last time you wrote somebody and said, when you left, I felt as if the sun had stopped shining. Or, the courage with which you were facing your difficulties is an inspiration to us all. We haven't the slightest doubt that in the end, you'll triumph over them all. Or, have I told you lately what a wonderful person you are? Never forget how much your friends and family love and admire you. When was the last time you wrote somebody and said, have I told you lately... What a wonderful person you are. No, Arthur said what I begin to sense was there was such an affirmation, such an encouragement to one another that he said sometimes I feel like we're losing today. I thought about that and I, I think he's right. I think part of it is social media. You know, there's so many good things about social media, but it also allows you to say things about people without having to look them in the eye or be near them. You know, I'll sometimes read a Facebook post and you start reading what some strangers added on and they are so mean and so cutting and so derogatory. I, I, just, I just quit reading. You know, we can tweet and we can text and it's easier to shoot zingers to other people and cut them down and call them out. You watch a TV show or a movie, we find humor in the way that we cut people down. We find humor in the way we make fun of them. You look at the news, it doesn't matter whether it's sports or politics. It's almost like we're looking for how somebody hasn't done it right, hasn't done it well. How did they stumble along the way? We're anxious to, to be so judgmental about them. I think it's because we live in this kind of an environment. It becomes harder and harder to step out and to risk, to dare greatly. Because you know that if you don't do it perfect, if you stumble, somebody's going to call you out. Somebody's going to criticize you. Somebody's really going to talk about you. And if we're not careful and we become afraid of what people think, well, we pull into ourselves and we fail to live fully, to dare greatly. We need encouragement. This morning, I'm going to bring to a conclusion our sermon series, Daring Greatly. And each week, we have been looking at this statement here by Teddy Roosevelt that's kind of inspired us to think about this sermon, this sermon series. And I read it to you again. You and I don't want to be a cold and timid soul that neither knows victory nor defeat. Our faith calls us to dare greatly, to listen to Christ and to be willing to try, knowing there's going to be times we come up short. We don't do it perfectly, but we try. We try, and in the trying... You and I live a life of significance. As I came to the end of this series, I couldn't help but think about one of our Bible characters who I really believe is the man in the arena. Not a cold and timid soul who doesn't know victory or defeat, but was willing to get out there. And that's John Mark. We read a little bit about him in this one passage this morning about John Mark. But John Mark is a story that covers many different places in the New Testament. And yet, uh, scholars have for years gone back and tried to piece together all these different things and see places in the New Testament that talks about John, John, Mark, Mark, and figure out, is that the same person? And today, we feel like we have a fairly good story. We don't know for sure. We don't have the perfect biography. But we think we know a whole lot of things about the life of John Mark. What we know, he grew up in a good family, a Christian home. His mother was Mary. And his mother, Mary, must have been doing well. She had a lovely home, big enough for Christians to come and meet there. It's kind of a house church. So he grew up kind of in a a family of faith early on. We know that when Peter, after Jesus had been crucified and raised from the dead, Peter had been in prison. And people were praying at Mary's home for his release and he managed to escape and where did he go? To Mary's house. So we know that John Mark knew Peter and that he knew the leaders of the early church. He grew up in that kind of a a good family. He had a cousin named Joseph. Joseph too was a person of faith. So much so that Joseph had a field and he sold it and brought the money to the disciples and said, do with it whatever you please. However you think is best, use it. And the disciples were so overwhelmed they said, you no longer will be Joseph. We will call you Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. So John Mark had a cousin who was the great encourager, son of encouragement, And it was Barnabas who got to know Paul. Last week, we looked at the Apostle Paul. We looked at how he was Saul persecuting the church. And on the road to Damascus, he has his conversion experience. And now Paul wants to be an apostle out in the world. He wants to meet the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, but they're afraid of him. It's Barnabas who knows Paul who goes to the leaders and says, If you trust me, then trust him. And so the leaders finally meet with Paul. And now he is going to go out and take the gospel to the Gentiles. So it is Barnabas and Paul who get together to lead out on that first journey. And John Mark raises his hand and says, I want to go with you. He knew it wasn't going to be easy. They'd get chased out of town after town, threatened, called names. John Mark wanted to get in the arena, and so he went with them. i got to tell you, we don't know what happened. Lots of speculation, but I can't tell you what happened. I'm not going to go there. All we know is somewhere along the line at Pamphylia, John Mark quits and comes back home. Maybe he got afraid. Maybe he was homesick. I don't know, but he quits and he comes home. Barnabas and Paul, they finish their missionary journey and come back home. And after being home a while, they're ready to go again. And John Mark raises his hand and said, I'd like to try again. And Paul says, no. You quit on us last time, you're not going this time. Barnabas said, we need to give him another chance. And these two great leaders had such harsh words... They fought and Barnabas and Paul split over John Mark. And it's Paul who decides to take Silas and go his way and it is Barnabas who takes John Mark and he goes his. Because it's Luke who writes the book of Acts and he travels with Paul that you hear the stories of Paul and Silas and Timothy but you don't hear the stories of Barnabas and John Mark. We do not know what happened. As scholars read the letters of Paul and some of those letters when he's in prison in Rome near the end of his ministry, he always comes to the end of the letters and he commends different people to the churches. Think about Phoebe. Think about this one. And you begin to find him mentioning, and I'm so grateful to John Mark. I'm grateful to Mark who does. I'm grateful to John who does. Scholars have been able to weave it through and say, we think that's the same person. We don't know how, but somewhere along the line there appears to be a reconciliation between John Mark and Paul. And John Mark is still involved in the church and doing significant things. The young man who was willing to try and came up short, who erred, who failed, in the end is with the Apostle Paul in Rome doing significant things. Now, he was blessed to have Barnabas as a cousin, the son of encouragement. You know, when I read this story and I did all this research, I I just kept thinking, John Mark was so blessed to have a Barnabas. And I started thinking, who are the Barnabases in my life? When I've come up short when I have erred, when I have failed. Who have been the people who have been there for me to encourage me to try again? Who's been there for you? It got me to wondering, am I being Barnabas to anyone? What other people are out there who have come up short who need that word of encouragement? We all need it if we're going to dare greatly. John Mark did. How did he do it? How can we do it? Just two things I want to share today. First of all, it's because of the experience of God's grace that John Mark dares greatly, it's the encouragement that comes through God's grace. He was blessed to have Barnabas, but he had also been raised in a family of faith. From the earliest days in the church that talked about God's grace, when you have failed, you can be forgiven. You are not judged and thrown away. It is God who keeps calling you to try again. It's the family of faith that he grew up in, knowing God's grace that caused him to try, to dare greatly. You know, it was on the second day of our Reformation trip. We went to the town of Erfurt, Germany. Erfurt, E-R-F-U-R-T. I U R T. I'd never had heard of Erfurt, but it's a beautiful place. Today it has about 200,000 people. Back there in 500 years ago, in Martin Luther's day, it had about 18,000 people, which was still one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire. It is one of the best-looking medieval towns in Europe today because it didn't get bombed in World War II. Erfurt. The reason we went to Erfurt was to go to the Augustinian Monastery there because that had such a significant place in Martin Luther's life. You see, Martin Luther, as a young man, well, he felt like such a failure. He never did it perfect. He always felt he came up short. And he felt God judged him and wanted to kill him, to punish him, because he never got it right. And one day Martin Luther was coming back to Erfurt where he was going to school, studying law, and he got caught in a thunderstorm and he almost got hit by lightning. And he knew that was God throwing lightning bolts at him. He just had bad aim and missed him. And so he fell to his knees and said, God, if you don't kill me, I'll become a monk. He didn't get hit by lightning. He went straight to the monastery there at Erfurt and asked to enroll. That was in 1505. In 1507, he'd be ordained a Catholic priest and he'd spend about 10 years there at Erfurt. He called it his spiritual home, a place where he would be growing in his faith. Well, we went to Erfurt to go to this Augustinian monastery to see this special place in his life. And it was on a Sunday. And so we wanted to go to church. It's a Lutheran church. You know, the interesting thing in the Protestant Reformation, you had all these Catholic churches, and many of them then with the Reformation decided, no, we are going to be Protestant. We're not going to report to the Pope. And so overnight you change, no, we're no longer Catholic. Now we're Lutheran, we're Protestant. That's what happened there at Erfurt in 1525. It suddenly became a Lutheran church. And so it was, we went to a Lutheran worship service. We came in and sat down. I mean, there was 33 of us. It's kind of hard to miss. I mean, there was a nice crowd there, but if you got a block of 33 visitors, I guarantee you, you notice. I'd notice if I had a block of 33 visitors. And so the senior pastor, this man, he did not speak any English they had an associate pastor, a lady. She did speak some English. And she came out there to us and said, where are you from? And we said, oh, well, y'all, you know, we're all from Oklahoma. <laughs> and she's going, oh, got it, got it. I said, we're Methodist. We're from St. Luke's. And she goes, I wish I'd have known you were going to be here. I would have done some things in English in the service to, to make you feel more at home. Do you have a pastor? Would the pastor be willing to come read Scripture in the service? And I thought, good Lord, I've gone to the other side of the world for a Sunday off, and now I've got to lead worship. (laughs) I said, I'd be honored to. So I followed her back up through the chancel, back into a little room, and and the first thing they had to do was find a Bible in English. And they finally found one, and then she kind of circled around a Scripture and said, Read this. Okay, I'll read that. She hurried back out and left me standing there with this other man. And I'm going, but when do I stand up? I mean, I couldn't read the bulletin in German. And I looked at him, and he could speak a little English. And he said, I'm reading the scripture in German. When I stand up, you stand up. I can do that. I got it. I got my cue. So I went back out and sat down with our group. And we started going through the service. And we realized when we were about to start saying the Apostles' Creed. And so we all started reciting the Apostles' Creed in English, as they did in German, and with the cadence, we all kind of did it together. And then they started praying the Lord's Prayer. They did it in German, we prayed it in English, and through the cadence, we prayed the Lord's Prayer together. It was incredibly powerful. To not know each other's language and yet be saying the same thing. The Apostles' Creed that we all just stood up and said a few minutes ago that's what they were saying. And we all said it together. Finally the time came from the Scripture. This man stood up. I saw him. Boom. I went right on up into the chancel and I said, I want to bring you greetings from St. Luke's Methodist Church in Oklahoma City. And She interpreted that. I said, it's such an honor to be here. Then I read the scripture. Then he read the scripture in German. I went and sat down and the pastor stood up to give the sermon in German. It's one of the finest sermons I've ever heard. (laughs) Didn't understand a word. I didn't need to. I mean, I was sitting in this church where Martin Luther had been worshiping 500 years before. I was looking at this beautiful stained glass and looking at the altar, and I was thinking how Martin Luther was struggling so much at this point in his life. Am I good enough? I'm always coming up short. It would be a time before he would experience that gift of God's grace that said, Martin Luther... You are loved by God. You are not perfect. You don't always do it right. You're loved by God. Now get in the arena. Try. Dare greatly. Now I sat there thinking about Luther as we were in this service, and then we came to the end, and it was Holy Communion. And then I started kicking myself. I thought I didn't ask this associate pastor. Can we come take communion? What's the right thing to do? Do we hold back? Do we go? I'm looking over at Wendy. What do you think? I don't know. What do you think? We're sitting there and finally they start coming out, the ushers, leading people forward. And we look up and there was this pastor and she's waving us forward and nodding. And the ushers came and we all got up and we went and took communion right along with all of these good German Lutherans. And I thought, isn't it interesting? Around the world, whether we are Lutheran or Methodist or Baptist or Catholic, we all celebrate Holy Communion. We all celebrate the sacrament. Because the thing that is foundational in our faith is that gift of God's grace. We may differ on so many different theological issues, But we all know the importance of God's grace. We all celebrate the sacrament. It's because of God's grace that you find the encouragement to dare greatly. Knowing you may come up short, you may fail, you may err. God asks you, dare greatly. Live a life of significance. And secondly, what John Mark discovered was daring greatly isn't about being happy. It's about significance. That if you dare greatly, if you're listening to God in your life, you're going to be asked to do things that may make you feel uncomfortable. They may hurt your heart. It may require sacrifice. But it leads you to a sense of meaning and purpose and a sense of joy because you feel significant. It's not just going to be easy and happy And what you're being asked to do. You may get frustrated. You may come up short. You may fail. You've been asked to dare greatly. I love to read, as you know. And years ago, one of those I started reading that I enjoyed was Tom Clancy. The first book I ever read, I'll always remember, years ago, first book I ever read was Hunt for Red October. That goes back. That's a great man. It captured my interest. And so I've read things about him, and I came across a story of Tom Clancy that he was telling about himself all the way back to 1990. He made the observation. He said, you know, I don't like to be around sick people. I avoid sick people because I find it depressing. I don't go to funerals because they make me so sad. But he said he received a a letter from a six-year-old boy named Kyle. And Kyle was saying how his grandfather read him books by Tom Clancy. And the reason he's writing him is that Kyle, six years old, now had cancer and he was fighting the battle and he just wanted to write to Tom. There's something in that letter that really spoke to Tom that hooked him in a way he usually didn't get hooked. And he wrote back. And so Kyle wrote back, and he wrote back, and they started writing back and forwards. And what he found out was Kyle loved fighter jets. And so Tom had his assistant send him a whole stack of posters of fighter jets. And then the hunt for Red October came out, and his little boy learned all the lines. And boy, he was having fun, and in the end, Tom called him. And these two started visiting. And Tom really got hooked on Kyle and found how much he loved hunt for Red October. So he called a few friends and on the USS Dallas submarine, he got it to where Kyle and his family could go have their own personal tour of the submarine and he got his own flight suit with his name on it. I mean, it was really cool. Well, he came back. Two years went by of all this kind of correspondence and then phone calls and then one day Kyle got the word this is going to be terminal. We're not going to beat it. Make-A-Wish Foundation stepped in, invited Kyle and his family to come to Disney World. And Kyle called Tom and said, would you come too? He cleared his calendar and decided he would go. The parents were very gracious and for a couple of days stepped back so that he could... He could be with his hero, Tom Clancy. Tom pushed a wheelchair through Disney World. They went to the Magic Kingdom. They would go to Space Mountain. And Tom said, you know, I I came to where I loved Kyle like he was my own son. It was a special time. And when he came back home, he didn't miss a day calling Kyle. They talked every single day. Kyle continued to go downhill And one day, he slipped into a coma, and then he died. And Tom Clancy decided he was going to a funeral. He didn't always do that. He was going to a funeral. He flew in for the funeral, and he said, just as I expected, I was a blubbering idiot. I cried and cried and cried. I hate having to cry like that, but it hurt so much. My heart was breaking. He went to the graveside, and again, it was so sad, and he cried so much. And when he got through, he was leaving with a couple of the nurses who had been there who had taken care of Kyle. And as they were leaving, one of the nurses said, So how are you doing? And he said, I'm not doing well at all. This hurts too much. It's breaking my heart. I am not doing this again. And this nurse just stopped, and she looked at him and said, But what about all the other sick children? What do you think Kyle would say? You know, you're nothing but a coward. And she turned and walked away. And Tom Clancy said, I stood there and thought about what she said. And she was right. As a coward. I didn't want to hurt. I didn't want my heart to break. And he said, the strange thing is, I'd been feeling so good. It was special to reach out and care for Kyle. It felt good to do things that I knew blessed his life and made him smile. It made me feel like my life mattered, that my life was significant as I reached out to love him and be loved by him. And now if I didn't want to do it again because it hurt too much, he said, I stood there and realized there were more children to love. When you dare greatly, it's about having a life of significance. Doing the things that matter. And it isn't always going to bring happiness and make you smile. It may make your heart hurt. It may require sacrifice. But it's what brings meaning and significance to who you are. You can be assured that through God's grace, you've been asked to try. And you're not going to do it perfect. And you're going to come up short. And you will fail. But there is God's grace that forgives you and asks you to try again. It's the story of John Mark, the man in the arena, For we believe this young man who had tried and failed would go off with Barnabas and good things must have happened because we believe he was in Rome leading in the church. What we do know is John Mark was in Rome with Peter. When Peter was in prison in Rome, John Mark was there. It makes perfect sense. They knew each other from back in the early days when Peter came to his house when he was just a boy. No, he was there. And it was Peter who was telling him his stories of being with Jesus. And John Mark wrote them down. And we would have the first gospel of Mark because he was there. And if you go back and read the gospel of Mark and read about the great failure of the disciples... The night when they gathered in the garden of Gethsemane and they pledged they would never deny him, and they came up short. They all denied him and ran him away and ran away. Read it in Mark, and at the very end of the story, you will read just two verses about a boy who was there wrapped in a linen cloth, And they clutched at him and grabbed his linen cloth and they yanked it and he ran away into the night naked. You don't find that story in Matthew. You don't find it in Luke. You don't find it in John. Only in Mark. You see, that that wasn't an important story to those other gospel writers. It had nothing to do with the story of Jesus but it was important to this one gospel writer because we believe that was John Mark. That he was there in the Garden of Gethsemane as a young boy with the disciples. And he too ran away. But he would hear the message of grace and the resurrection and be in a family of faith And as a young boy grow up and say, I want to go with you on that journey. And he would try and come up short and fail. And he would want to try again. And it must have gone well. Because the day would come, he would be in Rome and he would sit down and write for us the first gospel, the gospel of Mark. His life was significant. And so it will be for you and me. When you and I listen to Christ, and because of God's grace we're willing to try, your life will be significant if you choose to dare greatly. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen.